0: Attention, attention, please! The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air! Oh.
1: Chicken (coughs) Chicken
0: For the record, please say your name and your years at Camp Ojibwe.
2: Steve Katz. I attended Ojibwa from 1957 to 1972. I skipped two years, 1960 and 1967, and I've been coming. I've had my feet on the grounds at Ojibwa since '57. I've skipped a couple post probably around three, over a 40 some idea period.
0: Wow. wow, Quite a run, my friend. Uh, this one's been a long time coming. You and I sat down behind the mics once before, but we didn't really have as much of a goal in mind as we just did uh, getting some stuff down. So we've uh, had this one on the books for a while, so I'm glad we could get this one going.
2: Well, I think you've done a wonderful job, and I'm glad to be part of it. Thanks. I'm happy no, to have you. No, you really have. You've, you've you really encapsulated Ojibwe history, and it was something that needed and should have been done.
0: Well, I think we're going to get a bunch more of it right now.
2: Okay, let's go. So on.
0: let's start with you. How
2: do you first find out about Camp Ojibwa? We haven't ever talked about that, I don't think. I was watching a program on TV. I was six years old, and I'd been to a day camp. It was a Disney show. And the kids went to camp, and they looked like they were having a good time. And I said to my mother, "I think maybe my mother and my father, kids go away to camp, don't they? Oh, forget it. And they uh, started, my mother, this was before email, before, you know, obviously before any kind of electronic communication, wrote over 100 camps. Wow. And uh, we got, we went through, well, we spent a lot of time going through brochures and looking at camps. And we had one connection up here. It was a friend that lived in New Orleans, a fellow named Bert Klein, who was one of Al's original campers who'd thrown Ojibwa into the mix. Mm. And we narrowed it down between a camp named Horseshoe, not the Horseshoe that's down the road, but a camp Horseshoe, a camp in Maine called Androscoggin in Ojibwa. And we decided Ojibwa. I didn't know one person from Wisconsin. I didn't know one person from Chicago. Uh... My father was going to send me up on a train. I was seven years old. My grandmother decided that that was ridiculous. She <laughs> on a took, train all the way from New Orleans. <laughs> so she took me on my first plane ride. I know I sound like an old fart saying this. The plane stopped in Jackson, Mississippi, Memphis, Tennessee, St. Louis, and Chicago to an old airport. It wasn't midway. Know, it wasn't in O'Hare. And we ended up meeting Al. At the Northwest I think it was a Northwest train station take the train to camp, and that's mm. that's my story about how I got here, Wow, so did Al come to
0: you guys and do a camp call or anything, or was it just correspondence and then that was it.
2: It was just correspondence. I never had a camp call uh I'm like I said, I met Al an hour before the train left Eagle River. Wow, and how old are you at that time seven okay so you meet Al,
0: you head to camp. What's the first thing you can remember about getting here?
2: Yeah, I remember the train ride, but not distinctly. I remember being piled into the back of a truck like cattle, because before seatbelts were required. We, I mean, the trucks are still here. There's the Futransky green truck, and there's a red truck. Uh, those were the only two trucks. They made continuous runs. You know, if I didn't know better, I would swear that there were a 100 of us in the back of that truck. <laughs> then I remember <laughs> the next morning I got up, I got dressed. It was about 5.30 in the morning. I had no idea what you were supposed to do. Al was making his rounds, and he saw me dressed. I was the only one up. Mm, and he said, go, no, go put your bathrobe on, and that's when I got that's when my first taste of the camp routine, because I had never seen a, a slide or a camp call. I see. So even
0: before dip or shower or anything, you were up and at him, ready to go. And here's Al, like, "Oh, wait a minute, hold
2: on." I got up. And <laughs> I, got, I got up and
0: I got dressed. That's fantastic. Uh, so you come to camp now. Were you a sports kind of kid anyway?
2: Did you like sports, or was it just this? That's why. We, I say we, my parents and myself, picked Ojibwa. If it didn't bounce, I wasn't interested. Mm. I wasn't interested in a outdoors camp or a fishing or a tripping or a hunting. I, I wanted to come to camp and play sports and play ball. Not necessarily ball all the time. I swam and I was in track meet and that kind of thing. But I was interested in sports.
0: Mm. Right on. So you came up that first year. Do you remember any of your counselors?
2: I remember all, all of them. I remember all of them. One of them will actually probably be at a reunion. Uh, my JC was Mike Goldstein. My senior counsel was a guy named Alan Zuckerman, and there was a guy named Larry something. And I, I don't remember that any of them came back, but I remember my counselors from every year.
0: Mm.
2: Very nice. What, so what was it that first year that made you want to come back? I That's... I. That's a really good question, and I really don't know the answer. Um, I didn't have that great a first year. I had a great number of years after that. Um, I I don't know. I just I, – I, my personality, I guess I'm persistent, and I want to stick with something until I get it right. Yeah. I mean, I would say that uh, – It's no exaggeration to say you
0: may have as much love for camp as any individual I know. You love this place to the end. And uh, please take that as the compliment it's meant as. Um, And it's interesting to me because I also love this place, clearly. And I didn't have a great first year. No, you came in (laughs) out of the cold
2: just like me. You didn't know anybody when you got here. You came from a different city. You know, Chicago was just a place on the map. Right. And you get here and... You know, you do have to break through a a shell into all the kids that knew each other from home, that understand the the, the Chicago colloquialisms. Um I knew a lot about sports, but I didn't know well, I guess I did know the starting lineups because there were only eighteen sixteen teams at the sure. time. But there were certain Chicago things that I didn't know. I probably never played sixteen inch softball before. Um I had seen a, a a big softball before. No, I was used to playing twelve inch. But we played twelve inch in Peach League when I got here. So it wasn't quite that transition. I got to C sixteen because the big kids were playing it. And I don't know if they changed that or not. No, our little kids still play. We the so we played well. yeah. twelve mm-hmm. and I had a glove and so I, that was that was kind of familiarity. If I had come a couple years later, it would have been more of a, a breakthrough.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's just interesting to me that, you know, you can sort of some of the guys who have the biggest passion for camp are the guys who came and didn't have a great time that first year. Even a guy like Steve Elrod, when we talked, you know, he had a kind of a rough time early on, you know, but found this way to sort of come through that. And somehow that actually deepened his love for camp.
2: you know, that was one of the things that I, that I definitely thought of as I was listening to some of the interviews and nobody's really quite said, but you know, the, there are a couple people that come to mind that I really uh, admire their tenacity and their stick to itness about Ojibwa. Uh, the couple that come to mind are guys like Steve Elrod, Bobby Kaufman, Elliot Friedman is the outstanding example, mm-hmm. and the other one is Denny Rosen. You know, it's easy to be friendly and to get, try to get close to guys like Lee Cohn, who was one of the great athletes and the guy everybody wanted to be like in our generation. Louis Schwartz was very similar. Larry Lubin, uh, who was one of my campers, who was probably one of the best athletes and nicest guys ever to walk these grounds. But it's easy to be their friends. The guys that I just mentioned, Steve Elrod, Bobby Kaufman, Elliot Friedman they were not the Ojibwa prototype mm. they were not the poster child of what Ojibwa 's reputation uh, was. They had to swim upstream to get acceptance here and to become uh not only accepted, but popular in a camp that marks itself by athleticism and macho and and sports. Yeah. And they were none of the above. Denny Rosen, the same thing. When Denny got here, I remember when Denny got here in 59. I mean, Denny has become a wonderful, terrific camp director, owner, everything that you can be in a camp. But he wasn't smart enough to figure out when you got here, they put him in cabin one. Sure. <laughs> the next year, they put him on the waterfront. I have been at camp over 50 years. I have never seen Denny in the water. <laughs> I've never seen him on a boat except a pontoon boat smoking a cigar. <laughs> So you know, here's this guy who's obviously not too bright. First year they stick him <laughs> in cabin one, and the second year they 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 put him in a waterfront director where he's you know, uh, he you know he's about as water ready as, as a <laughs> as a as a rattlesnake in the desert. Sure. And he's another guy that is that had the now Denny was athletic enough that that same analogy doesn't quite hold, but he. Wasn't in the in-click. He fought up. He took all the jobs. He did them all well. He was a great program director and and a great director. Well, he wasn't smart enough to figure out how difficult it was to break into that. Mm. And those are the kind of guys that you really have to admire. You know, everybody laughs sometimes tongue-in-cheek about Elliot. It's really interesting. Elliot has been good at everything he's ever tried to do. He's a great accountant. He's there are very few people that that know Broadway shows or know the Chicago Cubs or as a hockey announcer. Elliot was a hockey announcer in high in college mm. at wow. Wisconsin, and all of those things, while they're not necessarily the Ojibwa uh, benchmark, are things that allowed Elliot, since we're talking about him, to. To make his mark with Ojibwa, and just like you asked me why I came back, I'm not sure why Elliot came back, but I think it might be the same reason. Elliot has always been persistent, and uh, I think he wanted to make sure he could make his mark at camp. And knowing Elliot, he probably decided he was going to do that and then leave. And then by the time he did. He was so entrenched in camp, he became an integral part of it. And the same thing with Steve Elrod, who lives to come up here every chance he gets, and Bobby Kaufman, um, who, you know, was a camper a couple years with me, and then we brought him along when Elliot and, and Denny and I. That's and that's another story. Put together the 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 deal to to the Schwartzes. Bobby was our attorney. And these are the guys that you really almost have to admire. Again, it's easy to be the friend of the superstar. Sure. It's not quite as easy to appreciate the differences in people like that. Yeah. But you
0: you bring up a great point, and that is that the, throughout the generations of Ojibwe, there are these guys who... Camp did have a prototype. Almost from the very beginning, Camp had a prototype, uh, a prototypical camper. And there are also the exceptions to that all along the way and guys yeah. who became notable for it. And there's something that camp gives that person that is, that is equally valuable, maybe more so than the thing it's giving those great athletes. You know, there, there is something that we're all coming back for. That's it's across the board, whether it's a, uh, it's the self-confidence, it's the, the, the feel, the, the safe place to win the safe, the safe place to have, things go your way and then be able to translate that into the real world elsewhere, whatever it is, there is that thing. And you're right. It's something to be admired across the board, but onward we go. Tell me more, a little, a little bit more about your, uh, your early years as a camper. What was it like? So you're a new Orleans boy and I'm sure that no one here knew anyone from new Orleans. That was pretty much the case.
2: And I didn't know anybody from Chicago except up here.
0: So they're like, you eat weird
2: food, you probably listen to weird music. <laughs> you know, I think I said earlier, there were some things that were colloquially Chicago and and things I didn't know. The first time I ever, ate, ever got excited, I think in 1958, we... Sust- uh, they put pizza on the menu. Now this menu was etched in granite. They never changed it. Pearl had her menu. Um, the food was good, but they had some meals that we couldn't stand. So they put pizza on the menu, and everybody was excited. Everybody was going to have pizza. Gonna, I had no idea what pizza was. Oh, wow! I came in, and I, you know, I, I was like everybody else. Uh, oh man, great! We're having pizza. No clue. So I learned. <laughs> I learned. To eat, pizza was up here. Um, I mean, even even when I when we first came here, I didn't take a dip in the water, in the dipper shower uh, mm-hmm. dilemma. Sure. I didn't know what a dip was. Fair. I didn't know what a dip was for two years. <laughs> then I started taking them. And I wasn't going to ask anybody because I feel you're supposed to know that. Right. Um, so, yeah, there were a lot of little things that were different. Um, and I learned and I made friends up here. And... And I'll, I'll extend on that in, in a minute. And then I, I you know, I, there were a couple of years I skipped, but two out of 16. Um, and I... I uh, camp was always... I loved the competitiveness of camp. And I think that... And you're, you're, you're asking, I guess, some of the really right questions. What made me come back was the competitiveness. It was always... Whether it was an individual aspect or whether you wanted to win Collegiate Week or you wanted to win Pineapple League or whatever it was, that's that's as you moved up in camp and you moved into leagues and more Collegiate Week chances to, to, to win or more chances to to win in the swim meet or the track meet, um, those were all terrific. And then as a counselor, your perspective changes a little, but it's but it's different because by then if you've been here, you've got other counselor friends, so it becomes not only the competitiveness, but the relationship competitiveness. To this day, I had a team in 69 that beat Kenny Bagan. who's one of my best friends from camp who I see on a regular basis. We go to each other's family functions all the time, so that's going back 60 years. Kenny Bagan had an undefeated team called the Sharks, and I still tease him about beating him in the championship. (laughs) That was his first loss. What sport was this? Uh, that was the, the Cats beat the Sharks in 69 in, uh, in uh, Pineapple League. I see. <laughs> but things like that, that's why you come back. Yeah. And that's what you talk about years later. But then, you want, you want me to keep going? Yeah, please. Then the conversation changes from the Cats versus the Sharks in 1969 to where are your kids now? are they going to camp still I know that his kids went to Texas Wisconsin I can't think of the other one and you know I I his I know his I knew his parents I know and and I know I'm digressing but that was one point that I really wanted to bring forward is that is really what Ojibwa is these 63 acres that we have up here that are filled with docks and boats and baseball diamonds and campfire sites they are a wonderful 63 acres but that's not what ojibwa is that's where ojibwa starts but it's not what ojibwa is ojibwa is a solar system and these acres are the sun. Mm. But it reaches out, and it reaches out into many, many planets. My example with Kenny Bacon is just one. They extend to my ex-campers. I talk to Doug Meyer every day. Uh, Jim Nachman, who died uh, uh, five, years and, five years and two months ago today, yeah. and I think about those kind of things. Uh, we talked every day. Uh, that might be an exaggeration, but how we talk four or five times a week uh, both of them, Doug, Jim. Um, I had counselors that came down and stayed with me. I had campers that came out to go skiing when I um, was in Colorado. Uh, I, we used to get campers and take them to Wrigley Field when bleacher seats were a dollar.
1: Mm. Uh
2: all those things are what Ojibwa is. Ojibwa's was running into somebody that I haven't seen for twenty years, and I felt like I I, I saw him yesterday. Um, that's the way that Ojibwa, and I don't think any other camp that I know of operates. But this is the training ground. This is the this is where the sperm meets the egg. Yeah. And then it grows and it grows, and like a person, it, it, it matures and it develops beauty and it develops maturity, and you've taken the sun all the way out to Pluto. Very well put. It
0: really, that network, that expands that is the Ojibwe family, uh, that you're right, It where while well, it starts here... Uh, that, that is the thing, and that, that is also the thing that is somewhat hard to define so often. Uh, it's a thing easy, as Denny says, easy to feel, hard to describe.
2: Well, yeah, but you you know, you know think and you, you have listened to enough of these interviews that you try <laughs> to describe. We had groups, we had three groups that I can think of, of kids that came down to Tulane. Now, you know, it's living right two miles from Tulane. None of these groups would ever come to Tulane without... Colonists. us they all many of them had dinners at my at my first at my parents house speckstein was the first one he was a long time Ojibwe camper and weren't really and also one of my close friends today we talk regularly not every day like Doug and I but but regularly um he came though to Tulane came over to the house like it was down the street um uh, from where he grew up, and it was a city he'd never been to. Then we had the group of uh, uh, Jory Catlin, David, that was Adam's father, although he, mm. Jory didn't go here, Adam did, and so did his other kids. Um, uh, Grant Bagan, Barry Feldman was down there, David Matasar, I don't know who I forgot who's going to get mad at me, that group. And then when they left, um, Steve Elrod, Mark Nockbar. And uh, Arnie Rubens came down. And then it had transcended. Instead of having him over to my parents' house, they came over to our house. Nice. And all these things perpetuate
0: relationships. Yeah. I, I could feel that on, uh, you know, I just drove around the country a few months ago and uh, not only stopped and saw you, but uh, saw a few dozen different people and could feel exactly what you're talking about. And also felt, you know, it was like, Putting the push pin into the board with the yarn t- attached to it every time I got to stop, and I hope I was doing my part too. That that they were getting it from me. The the Ojibwe love coming at them,
2: you know. The the, the push pins on the map.
0: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> they were feeling that connection and getting retied into the system a little
2: bit. But you know, being not being from Chicago I actually may have tightened my bonds from to camp. A mm-hmm. uh, couple examples. We had a counselor up here named Howie Falk. I don't know why Howie hasn't gotten the play that most people, most of the great, great athletes from Ojibwa had. Howie Falk was a left-hander who, I saw him hit Katie's house a ball, flew over the mess hall, and he did it more than once. He was the best left-handed hitter I ever remember. He
0: was such... For you young kids out there, Katie's house is is John Hines' house now, or Scott Dahmerhausen's house for you.
2: (laughs) Right. Sorry about that. But anyway, it's the house... Over Chris's office, over the mess hall, then over Chris's office, then the next building. <laughs> it's a Actually, no, there's one in between as the investor. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a long hit. <laughs> Nobody hit hit a ball left-handed as far as Howie Falk. But he was a, one of the really great athletes. Anyway, to continue the story and get to the point, Howie came to New Orleans as a, as a basketball player. Mm. In addition to being a long hitter, he was a, a first-string college basketball player. And he had told me that... Uh, he was going to be playing in New Orleans. I made my mom take me to the game. We went to the game. He put me on the bench next to legendary coach who actually won some national, ch- a national championship, George Ireland. He introduced me. He said, you can sit right there. I was nervous, but I felt great. <laughs> and how he played most of the game, I think he was probably the leading scorer for Loyola that night. And... You know, I just thought that was really a a wonderful extension of of Camp Ojibwa. Louis Mager, who I just saw for the first time in many years, came down and uh, didn't stay with us. He had dinner at the house, met the whole family. He was with us more than a day. Um, I remember Mickey Schwartz came to New Orleans. He called me up. Artie Berman called me two years ago, and said, hey, I'm coming to New Orleans. Hey, what, I'd like to get together. I said, Artie, that's great, but I've lived in New Orleans for 25 years. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Elliot used to come down. Uh, I was always in Elliot's I found story. that amazing
0: picture of uh, Elliot with Baby Beryl, and I just thought that was the most adorable picture ever.
2: Well, by that time, I was in my 30s, Elliot used to come. Elliot and I used to go to New York every year and look at sh- and watch shows, just Gosh. the two of us. That would never happen today. He, Elliot was 18 and I was 15, and we went to New York and we saw shows. Wow. Wow. Then Elliot came to New Orleans. The next time, and I'll never forget, this is just a short, wonderful Elliot story, and those of you know Elliot. I got a car. I was a, at the end of my freshman year at college, and we were dri- I was going to drive it, from Colorado, New Orleans, which he did, and Elliot was going to come down and drive it with me up to camp. And he did. The entire trip, which was, I guess, 18 hours, something like that, Elliot brought all of his tapes and his, I guess it was his right hand, conducted the orchestra for all 18 hours. <laughs> Elliot's hand never stopped moving. (laughs) Classic. Classic Elliot Friedman. (laughs) You can see it, can't you, Chris? Absolutely.
0: I've I've watched it in this office many times. Never for 18 hours. (laughs) Then he
2: sent, you'd leave.
0: (laughs) One thing is consistent about a lot of the names you just mentioned and a lot of the guys I've talked to that were here during any era that you were. Your name comes up over and over. It is no uh, secret that you're a little bit of a character at Camp Ojibwe. Uh <laughs> You certainly have a personality that stuck with a lot of guys, and you impacted an awful lot of other campers, of counselors, uh, of, of both contemporaries and then those who would follow you. Uh, you had a big impact on. Let's talk about some of your hijinks. Now, the number one story that I will hear every time Involves Gold Rush Day. And do you know the story I'm referring to?
2: Well, it could be one of two. <laughs> That's the best answer ever. <laughs> <laughs> it was the Chip Kobe and Lenny Lapkin in the tree? Oh, absolutely. Where I stepped on Chip's hands. Well, <laughs> well, <laughs> I pushed him a little. bit. I was going to say, you tell your version, and then I can share the exaggerated <laughs> version. Okay. I used to go climb these trees, and I, I've always been loved climbing. Some people hate heights. I love them. I climb serious mountains these days. older I get, the more I think I am running out of time, and I like to do these, these. I've always liked to climb. So I climbed up a tree. Now, for, just to put it into perspective,
0: non-exaggerating, just a realistic number, how high up in this tree are you?
2: I am probably way o- I'm over 50. I'm not 100, maybe 70, 70 to 80 feet high. That's pretty high for a camp tree. (laughs) Well, no, camp trees are high. (laughs) Okay. So my strategy was, and I had done this before a couple years ago, I don't remember who was after me, but this had worked. I picked two extremely high trees that were close together so that if somebody's coming up, I can switch trees and go down the other one. It's a great strategy. It's a great strategy. It worked for years. So and that had worked before. So this time, Chip Kobe is coming up. He's a kid from Indianapolis. He's coming up, and I'm going higher, and I'm getting ready to cross the trees, and damn it, they're teaming up on me. I look to the tree that I'm about to cross over on from branch to branch, which, you know, is, is kind of ballsy, but it, it, I was a climber. So... I see Lenny Lapkin coming up that tree. So then I figured, you know, you guys aren't fighting fair, so I won't either. So I don't know what story you heard, but what I did when Chip got close to me, I stepped on his fingers. Okay. And it worked.
0: He didn't
2: quite get to me, but he was really close. There might have
0: been words used like, kicked him out of the tree. Well, I guess if you step on his fingers, isn't that sort of one and the same? Uh, but I had to preserve my undefeated record. All right, listen, I yeah. I respect that. Um, Thank you. Now, I've also heard rumor that it's possible that there was once a Gold Rush Day where you were told it was Gold Rush Day, and then that didn't actually – no one else was told it was Gold Rush Day, and you just went and hid. Danny
2: gives me a hard time about that. <laughs> From all – you know, every once in a while, he'll pull out that story. It wasn't exactly Gold Rush Day. It was before Gold Rush Day. It was Hare and Hound. Oh, of course. Hare and Hound, yes. And it was after dinner and I went up and I climbed the tree and I'm sitting up there and nobody's coming. Nobody's coming. And I don't know what I miss, but I hear taps. Now this is about two hours after being in <laughs> this damn tree. And when I went up there, it was daylight. Now it's dark. <laughs> so I'm climbing down a tree and I finally get to the tree and I go into camp. And by... Somewhere around the flagpole in front of the office are Denny and Mickey. And, you know, at this point, I've got sap on me. Uh, I've got all kind of little pieces of branch. And very proudly, I tell him, I must have missed the bugle call. Nobody got me again. Denny, I don't remember which one of them started laughing first. Denny looks at Mickey. Mickey looks at Denny. It was like watching two little kids when they're holding their hand up to their mouth and their cheeks are getting big and they can't stop it. And then they blurt it out. They both start laughing and they look at me and I'm wondering what the hell's going on. And again, I don't remember if it was Denny or Mickey. It said to me, we never had it.
0: Is that the story <laughs> you're talking about? Word. That's terrible. <laughs> Now, when it comes to climbing exploits, exploits, uh, <coughs> I assume that you were the first person to climb the moon tower, the radio tower. That's I think you're probably Topic. the only one. Well, now, Tamir loved oh, climbing. He? Yeah, he would go do it once a year. And so when I got here, it was a thing he would go do. And I was like, oh, and you know, and he's, and there might have, <laughs> you might have dragged somebody out partway with him at <laughs> some point along the way. But then I'd started to hear stories of guys. And do you, I, you're probably the first person, right? I
2: uh, definitely you're first person first. because I remember they put it, it wasn't there. When I got when they course, put it up, I course. climbed it.
0: <laughs> Easy as that. Um, so there's that. Now, other potential hijinks that I hear a lot about from the guys are you you do have kind of a big appetite. Now, I've heard that you have been known to put away a couple of plates of food at Camp Ojibla. Uh
2: I done it. Other places, the, I have a big appetite. <laughs> I, I have a big, I eat a lot, and I. Are there any, consume a lot of calories. Any uh, well, I mean, you're clearly
0: working them off. You're on, on the water at 6 a.m. every morning at camp. So uh, I've heard a lot about that. The ribs, the steaks from the guys at camp. The old steaks, especially the old the guys. Now, any story about steak night from <laughs> the Al Schwartz era typically has some exaggeration built in to begin with. I mean, every basically every story I've ever heard about that, but. I've heard them use, you know, double-digit numbers
2: of steaks and things like that. Is that a, an accurate? Oh, yeah. I, those The steaks weren't that big. They were four or five ounces because oh. they didn't want—they they used really good meat. I see. And they didn't want to waste it, so they cut them in half. I remember one time Mickey weighed out 12 pounds, and I ate that. Uh, but I've done it. I mean— <laughs> I've always had a big appetite. <laughs> you know these. You know these advertisements that you've seen. If you can eat eighty ounce steak plus a baked potato, I'm plus sure. oh, I've, I made so much money doing that. I bet <laughs> Mary Sue will tell you some of the side bets. I I I I, I never lost one of those bets. Wow. Okay.
0: <laughs> so the stories are true. Any of those stories you've heard here? Now you know. <laughs> um, maybe my favorite <laughs> story that I've heard about you. Period. And I had no idea about this until I heard it right here interviewing guys. And that is that one year during collegiate week, you decided to run the obstacle course alone against the other teams. Tell me how that came to be.
2: Yeah, I don't really know how it came to be, but I was, at that point, um, we were training a lot up here. We had some, I don't remember if this was when Glenn Nespa was here or not, but Glenn and I used to work out a lot and run I was a college swimmer. In fact, I was. I, I went to nationals in college a couple of times, and I could run. Um, I was in really good shape. This was actually before triathlons were done because probably 10, 12 years after that, I started doing triathlons did them for 30, 35 years. Um, so those were really the components that you need to do the whole uh, – obstacle course, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, one person could do this. This is just really a fun workout all day long. You know, I'll take, it'll take long. But, you know, I appreciate the compliment, but you got to remember there were some parts in that obstacle course where my time's up against some kid who's 10 years old. So, you know, I, as it turned out, I think I finished third, and I remember there were times, there were, and it was close, and I could have won that race. I could have finished first. But I wasn't sure because nobody had ever done it, and I didn't know quite how to pace myself. Sure. The swimming was really easy for me, and I picked up a lot of time there, and I was a good runner. And so, you know, i sure I ran faster than even the senior campers. Right. And all the other stuff, you know, I'd been, I'd been at camp long enough. That I learned all those skills. I knew how to shoot archery. I knew how to shoot baskets. Uh, the only thing we had to really change was I hopped during the three legged race. <laughs>
0: I didn't even consider that. That's fantastic. And then
2: I think somebody told you maybe. It was, then Mike Begin The next year, I did the obstacle course again, but they couldn't get a time on because Mike Began was so funny. He took the Donzi around the island. He had a chauffeur-driven car, yes, and which is probably even then the most exercise that Mike had in, 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 in his entirety at camp.
0: Uh, so it's that personality. It's though it's that personality that has led to fifty years of stories. And
2: I, mean, I hope, they, you know, I hope they don't stop.
0: Yeah. Get, listen, you are, you are a beloved figure at Camp Ojibwa. Sure. That's for, sure. that is what I've learned talking to guys over the years. So you, you come back, you're a counselor for a while. How does that change for you? How does it, how does it feel to suddenly be in charge or responsible versus just getting to be a camper?
2: I don't know. I had the greatest cabin that anybody could ever have. I had it my first year as a counselor. Um, and I hadn't been to camp in two years. That was one, right after one of the years I skipped. Okay. And um, first person, first camper I ever met was Doug Meyer. And our relationship goes back fifty years. Yeah. Um, through good Broadway productions and bad, <laughs> through um, got a zillion ball games together in every city that you can imagine. Uh, all kind of things, uh, you know. That was a relationship that stuck. But we had a great, great cabin, and that's all part of it. Um, I'm trying to think. Steve Elrod was in that cabin. Larry Lubin, Kirby Caden, Joel Shader. We just had a reunion mm. that is by We had half the cabin. Wow. Uh, uh, who else? Mark Knopfbar was up there. We had half our cabin from 48 years ago, which I defy any camp to match that. Right, that's
0: incredible. So,
2: we had a really good cabin, and really nice kids. I had kids that stuck together, and I, I guess I had them in cabin five. Then I had them again in cabin either nine or ten, and then three of those kids came to Tulane, and I got and so that that was one of the things that really really made it easy. And then. As, we, as, I, as I had other cabins, uh, Kenny Bagan was one of my co-counselors, and we had more fun with each other, and we had—everything um, was fun. And then the next year, that, then I went Collegiate Week, which is always fun. And then I graduated college and traveled for—I graduated in December— at mid-semester, because I picked up an extra degree, and I traveled, and as I'm traveling, I was—I I was in India or Hong Kong. And I was before email; you'd go to the American Express office to send your mail and mm. and get it. And I really started thinking about camp. I wrote Al Schwartz a long letter, probably around March or something. And I really like, well, come back before I go, you know, to work. I, I'll be back in the U.S. and I'd like to come to camp. I hope you have room for me. And I've thought long and hard and I really miss it. And he wrote, and then I got to Hong Kong and I went to the American Express office and there was a response from Al Schwartz, come on back. Wow. That's fantastic. So that was my year. And then, then I came back that last year and I didn't want to coach Collegiate Week. It was a little, It was a very different thing. You know, I was getting ready to go to work. I was you know, I knew this. That I mean, I thought the year before was my last year, so this was definitely gonna be my last year. And I was doing a lot of work on the waterfront. I was, uh, I had a cabin, but I was really, pretty much running the waterfront. Um, and I was taking. I, w- I watched the seventy-two Olympics over Jack Keishan's house. Mm. It was a really different kind of year for me that year. I spent some time. You know, I got to know people in town. Um, I was at camp a lot, but I watched the whole seventy-two Olympics. That was the Munich Olympics where they murdered the Israelis. Right. Uh, I watched that with with Mister Um It was it was a very different feeling. That was one of my different years at camp, um, but I, I guess really that year was different. The year before, when, when I won Collegiate Week, was was different, and other than that, there really weren't that many. Different years at camp. My my years as a counselor were probably the most fun because hmm. I I just always remember having really good kids, and I don't think that was just my perspective. We, you know, there were some bad cabins you could have, but my kids were really good. Nice.
0: Uh, you mentioned Al. Uh, let's get to it. Al Schwartz, Pearl Schwartz, unfortunately, gone before my time here. So. I've gotten to know them a little bit through this project, which has been amazing. Uh, But I get the feeling that you had a pretty special relationship with
2: those guys. Talk to me about that. Uh, Al Schwartz was a very dynamic person. Um, uh, I'll come back to Al in a second. But he and Pearl were a really good team. I know, I can't remember whose interview it was. You might remember. Somebody, it was one of the old timers that said when, when Al married Pearl, and Al didn't start the camp with Pearl. Right. Pearl came in, I think, 80, 32 or 33. And it was like the sheriff came to Tombstone.
0: Yeah, Nussbaum, I think, said that.
2: Uh, Pearl <coughs> was, it might have been Nussbaum. Pearl was very Amy Vanderbilt-ish. Mm. Everything was proper. Everything was... Uh, which is hard to do at a boy's camp. Sure, <laughs> certainly. Uh, I, I mean, you know, she was very cognizant of which hand you, you picked your water glass up with, I mean, little things that nobody cares about. But she was a dynamic force, and she was the mother image we all needed at camp. Um, But she wasn't as integral as the camp. A lot of people have thought the two of them, and the two of them did well, but Al was was the go power. Al was the one that could recruit. Al was the one that had the vision of camp. Um, I hope, and I'll go on with Al in a minute, I hope that Al's three children will hear this. And his three children are not only Alan and Mickey, but Denny as well. And... I got home from camp, it was probably my first, no, I think it was my second year, maybe it was my third, but I won a lot of medals. I was probably at the top of the bracket, and I won horseshoe medals and marbles, and uh, I placed, I didn't win, but I placed in the swim meet, the rest of the years I won, but I placed in the swim meet and had just a lot of hardware, Well, fast forward that a couple years, and I remember talking to my mother about how Ojibwe gave such really nice awards. And fast forward then a couple years, and my mother, I'll give her full credit, really pointed out something about Al Schwartz that I've never heard anybody else say, but it's very true. When he gave the awards, that was just the culmination. But what Al Schwartz did with Ojibwa that might be one of the keys to its success, Al Schwartz made an effort to find something that every boy could do well. Mm. And the boy that couldn't hit the road with the baseball was maybe a sharpshooter in riflery. The boy that didn't score 30 points at basketball maybe he could win the horseshoe match. Al's goal was to find something that every boy was good at. Elliot Friedman did the medicine man. Uh, And very well. And very well. Yeah, Almost as good as David Meyer. (laughs) (laughs) Almost. Almost. But that, if Al has no other legacy, that, and he does have other legacy. But that is the legacy to be proud of, to find of 200 boys every year something that they will all be proud to go home about. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's something Denny and I talked a lot about. It was an epiphany for me when I had been at camp long enough to learn or realize, or whatever the right word for it is, that we're not a sports camp. We're a camp that teaches boys how to have self-esteem. That's what we do. Sports is the medium that we paint with, but what we do is give kids self-esteem. And... The perspective of the entire world opened up when I realized that's what we do here, mm-hmm. that it's not a sports camp. And right. that that's the thing. And that's exactly what you speak and to. I and I think and when we-
2: I refer to my mother's comment that Al found something that's every it. boy could be good at, um, I, I, I think that that philosophy starts with Al and goes to Denny. And Denny's taken it really to a whole nother level. Yeah. Denny has made it more of an effort to take the kids from the bottom and levitate them to the top. Mm-hmm. But- I, I think that's one of the things, like I said, that that Al passed on to his three children. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But as far as Al
0: personally and sort of your relationship personally with him, were you able as a camper and then later as a counselor to have a personal relationship or was it more just boss and I always had a
2: relationship with Al because for for a different reason. Um After the story I told you about when I came up to camp, then Al would pick me up at uh, O'Hare, and I would spend the day or the night, depending on the situation, with him. We really didn't have anybody that wasn't from Chicago or that didn't have a relative from Chicago to put them on the – and I didn't. I kept coming back. So I would stay with Al. I mean, I remember going to Sox games and Cub games with Al.
1: Nice.
2: Um, Taking a nap at his house, staying at his house on, I think it was on Newgart Street in the north side in Chicago. And then when he moved, he moved to Lakeshore. I always had a relationship with Al. Um, uh, I I guess it was special. It was it was interesting. I told you when I was traveling, I asked if I'd come back. He was glad to have me. Um, I would go places with Al in the morning I was always up early and Al was always Al was up early, Al was up at 5.30 and I, even as a counselor I'd get out and I'd be running the road at about 6 o'clock and sometimes we'd have to go into town so I would have those moments to drive in with him mm-hmm. and it would just be Al and I and as he got older and after we took the, the camp over um, I had a couple Business situations When I found myself in Chicago on a, you know, every couple-month basis. I'd always try to go over and visit. I didn't get every time, but most of the times I was in Chicago, I'd always find time to go over. And if, yeah, you asked me if I had a relationship. Al must have been 90. I walked into his apartment, and he had a a assist a helper lady that was very, very good with him. I walk in, he looks at me, and he says, Steve Katz, are you coming from Colorado and New Orleans? It blew my mind. Hmm. And to have that kind of relationship with Alan, for him to remember those kind of things that were important to me, was very ego-satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. Wow.
0: That's amazing. So moving past your counselor years... Are you already coming to post-camp at that point? Are you already sticking around for post-camp at that point? Or is that something that comes after you stop being a staff man?
2: Um, I started coming to post-camp, I am trying to think, either in 66 or 68. The reason I remember is because my sister was up at Camp Nicolay, would come over and stay with me then, and we'd drive to New Orleans. And then when she stopped coming and I continue to be a counselor here. I kept doing post-camp. I would stay the whole time. One of your other interviews, and I, he's one of the few guys from camp I haven't kept up with, is Hank Koransky. Hank Karansky and I would close. Camp was very, that's another thing that Denny's done, I'm diverting for a second, that's really different and really nice and very comfortable. Denny has integrated camp into a place that is comfortable being in Eagle River, Al kept camp cloistered. Mm. You went to camp; it was its own body. We went to town once, twice a year. We there were no, there was no what I call an Eagle river interface until Otto came along. And that was that was when it first started to change. And then Danny brought it to a whole new level, right. knowing people there and coming alive. When you asked me about post, I'd stay all through post. And Hank Karansky and I. We close up this place. The Schwartzs left. They left when their guests left. They were left an hour behind. <laughs> we we uh, put the little um, latches on the shutters. We took the ropes up. Uh, we took the anchors rather up in the ropes with the rowboat. Mm-hmm. We put the boats away. Um, we when we left. Katie and her dog butch were the only two people were the only two beings here, and camp was closed up solid. We came up a couple times in the winter. Elliot used to organize trips, snowmobile trips and no nobody's you know other than a couple packages up and down the road, there was nobody on these grounds for months now it's comfortable. I've come up in the fall and and there are people here, and there are people working on camp. And there's used to be Scott, now it's John. There's there's some there's life in this this whole thing, and I, I forget. Mm. What, but you, know, you asked me about post, but that's post. We would Hank and I would 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 close up the whole place. So you are going uh, – you start coming back for
0: post camp, and you're coming back basically every year. And then we will eventually get to, and we're gonna we're gonna cut the story off a little bit before that, but we're gonna hit the mid '80s. And some s- big changes at camp. But we'll get to that in the next part of this story. Um, what else are we missing in this part of the story, though?
2: Um, I think one of the things that, that needs to be mentioned is the athleticism at camp and how it's changed and, and what, how that, that really it seems to be a hallmark of everyone else's uh, um, interview, we have had some absolutely incredible. This this is a a mecca for athleticism, and that's changed as the emphasis on sports has has changed in coaching and in practice schedules, and uh, probably overdone today. But it, it's it's hurt camp in some ways. Um, but this is this has really been a a. Training grounds for for a lot of really great athletes that have come through this, and on your end of the end of the camp instruction, we've had some very more than one uh, famous person in the entertainment.
0: Certainly, in fact, our uh, very first honor camper in 1928, Tully Friedman? Howard Teichman. Oh, Howard Teichman, right.
2: So from from day one. <laughs> and then Tully Friedman, and then I remember having—I didn't know him because we weren't camp contemporaries. But actually, Al Schwartz told me to do this, and it, we, we, Al Sherman, <clears throat> hello mother, hello father, sure, came down to a, a big, a very fancy entertainment venue in New Orleans, <clears throat> and. Al said, tell him you're from Ojibwa. He'll be glad to see you. So I sent him when I was probably 12 years old. I sent him a note back stage. I was about 15. And, you know, Steve Katz, Camp Ojibwa. Sure enough, after the show, he comes out to the table. I was with my parents, and I think some. I think I had a friend there. I remember mean, it was my sister. And he came out, and he sat at the table, for about an hour, we talked wow. about camp. He talked insistently about Ellen. I think he had a crush on Ellen for many years. A lot of people did. My counselor in cabin nine had a crush on Ellen. She used to do her campfires with us because it was a mutual deal. Of course, then she married Harvey, and that worked out great. Yes. Uh, you know, some now we're talking fifty years later, but I remember Alan Sherman sitting there asking me about Ellen. That's really all I remember. I we talked about his show. We talk, I just remember him asking me about Ellen.
0: <laughs> That's fantastic.
2: Uh, yes, she made quite an impression. There's several of the
0: gentlemen I've talked to, you know, whether the, the, the handful of women at Ojibwe in those times, you know, whether it was Ellen.
2: Ellen was Rita, dynamic. Or, Ellen or was Pearl not her here all the time. She was, I think when I was here a lot, a lot of the time she was living in LA. I don't mm. know why or what, what, she was teaching school out there or something, but, but Ellen was always fun and dynamic and witty.
0: Yeah. That's super fun.
2: You mentioned the stage
0: part of things. Uh, that's something I didn't ask you about. What about your own exploits on the Camp Ojibwa stage?
2: Oh, they were not worthy of, of time on this <laughs> tape. Although, although Elliot never lets me forget it. Um, I know in Denny's interview, he said he produced the worst stunt ever in oh, Ojibwa yes. history. I'm not sure he's right. <laughs> Uh, let's. My biggest contribution to the stage at Camp Ojibwa is introducing, or at least orienting, Doug Meyer to the, the appreciation of Broadway, to which he has taken it many, many levels up. I think we can leave it at that. We, but we have had some incredible—the uh, one that never gets mentioned in all your interviews is Dale Fisk, yes. who was terrific.
0: Uh, George Sachs was was sure to make sure he got mentioned, but that's uh, true. He has sort of he sort of f- falls in the cracks between uh, Mager and Fletcher. He does, but they
2: were they were contemporary a lot, and they really uh, collaborated to have some really incredible musical. Well, funny story about Dale Fisk. Dale Fisk, sort of like Chris Tomlinson, came to Ojibwa, not knowing really what the job, without a good job description. And is that a good description of your description? That's the best way to get a theater person to Camp (laughs) Ojibwe. Well, this was a little different. Dale Fisk comes here not realizing that we had a Jewish orientation. Mm. And when he gets here, he's all prepared on uh, what a friend we have in Jesus Christ will Christ will return sure. He's got all these songs Ready for it So he scrambles it And reconnoitres in a hurry But nobody said that I knew that story About Dale Fisk And I always thought It was That's funny That's
0: fantastic He pulled in with a hymnal And
2: like oh no. here we go <laughs> That's awesome uh, I I do think I, I was up here this year For the first time in God Almost 50 years To see a collegiate week And uh I always loved Collegiate Week. Collegiate yeah. Week, we always, all of us did. And some of the changes that Collegiate Week has gone through, and some, you know, being old school, I, I, I find them strange, but they really have recaptured the entire um, um, spirit. And there are a couple changes that have been made. Many of them good. Many of them just necessity that you have to accommodate more kids. You have sure. to accommodate more teams, um, but it's terrific what that they've really kept this whole thing together, um, and that they've. It, it's such a wonderful effort. We've right now, right now we have, and this is this is important to say. I think they have concocted a staff that has so far exceeded the capabilities of what I call an Al Schwartz staff, where it was campers that became counselors and program directors that served before they were going to med school or law school. And nobody, it definitely, if if Ojibwe had a, a fault, and it doesn't have many, there was no real continuity in the staff. Danny has made an effort to change that. Elliot, too. Elliot's been important in changing that, too, um, to where you have a lot of professional people. I was really sorry to see Al Futransky, uh matriculate out. Yes. Uh, I think you, you, you've you been a tremendous—it's hard to believe you've been here 16, 17 years? Yeah. Wow. Tamir will be missed. Mm-hmm. But like Denny says, for those at least, they'll be replaced. You may not think that anybody, look, nobody ever thought that they could replace Sid Novak. Sure. I can uh, imagine. Sid was a great, Al was lucky. Al had Sid followed by Denny. Hmm. That's just greasy ass luck. <laughs> Now, Absolutely, You know, the old Pippin line is an old expression, every wise man knows by heart it's smarter to be lucky than it's lucky <laughs> to be smart. Uh,
0: I was going to ask you, you, you were here for the end of camp for the first time in a very long time, and you also got to see Warrior Night. Now, the first question I have is, was Warrior Night a tradition when you were here? And then, I don't know if that's an easy question.
2: It's a, It was definitely a tradition, and the yeah. theme was the same, but Warrior Night that we had and Warrior Night that I saw were totally different. You know, I was going to say, and you
0: were, you were moved to, to speak during Warrior Night, so I just wanted to ask you about that and and, um,
2: and just to illuminate the differences a little bit. Well, first of all, it was a total different venue. It went from the rec hall to the campfire site. Um, there were no fraternity-like initiations like we had. Um, you know, Ojibwe Going back to the solar system analogy, is a fraternity, and I've said to people that don't, you know, when we, I refer to OJIB when people look at me like, "You talking about summer camp the kids go to?" I said, "This is stronger than any three Greek letters that have ever been put together," Hmm. and the warriors is kind of like that too. But this is this has changed, and the bond and the strength I don't think has changed. There were some really heartwarming speeches. Uh, Nobody ever that that forum was not open to, uh, I say, the public, uh, the camp public. I see. Where people can get up and speak. Not just I thought that was nice. I I mean, I thought there probably should have been a limit or it should have started with a certain age group and older. But there was some very, very touching uh, commentary. And the only reason that I got up was because I had the perspective— to look back on 60 years that these kids don't have just because the numbers, you know, they don't have 60 years to look back on. And my point to all of them when I did speak at Warriors Night was to make the effort. Um, In order to keep this type of feeling that we have... Uh, at our jibwin. it's a, again, it's, it's whatever you want to call it—a brothership, a fraternity without any Greek letters. It's a bond that no other camp that I know and very few organizations have. But but the only way that works is if you make the effort to keep it alive. If you don't, and this is this is again what I what I what I said at that power that you're referring to. If you don't make the effort to proliferate the specialness of, of what we're experiencing somewhat through these interviews, some of the speeches that I heard out there. It doesn't happen. It doesn't just happen. If you don't pick up the phone, I would no more go to a city where I knew somebody from camp was that, you know, that I didn't try to reach them or say hi. And, of course, now it's different again the community. But you send them an email instead of uh, calling them. Uh, you know, when when I went when I went to other cities, I'd stay with guys from camp. I'd, I'd call them up in the off season. We'd talk about things. Pro, we, we would perpetuate the relationship, and that's what you have to do to keep this type of of feeling alive. And Warriors Night has really changed into an event to proliferate camp relationships. And I think that's terrific.
0: That's wonderful. And I think that is exactly spot on. On that note, let's bring, uh, bring the curtain down on part one. And uh, there is, uh, of course, one question I always ask at the end. Tell me one great camp story.
2: Well, everybody would understand this story. But going back again to Al's three kids, Ellen, Mickey, and Denny, they can all... They'll all be able to see this, and all, all of you who know Al would, will under, will, can picture this in the movements. I had a girlfriend at camp. I was never a bar guy. I didn't go out. I, I've just never been a drinker. Uh, doesn't mean I didn't get my share of trouble, but I never—it <laughs> was usually not in, <laughs> not in bars, maybe outside of, but never. So when I was up at camp, I had a girlfriend from camp that I met in town. And we had a wonderful summer romance for many years. And it really was just a summer romance. Each summer we'd we'd meet each other again and we'd go on dates. I mean, we just did everything together on my nights out. You know, as Chris says, it's sometimes in these interviews it's such a long summer, right? It's a long summer. <laughs> so the last year I was spending most of my summer at the I had a cabin but I was at the waterfront shack and oh, I guess it was about 6, 30 in the morning, and my girlfriend and I were walking across, and Al Schwartz is coming from around the shower house, picking up candy wrappers that he always complained about, but he always walked the grounds, every inch of it, before 7 o'clock. I didn't see him, he didn't see us, I mean, we are walking around, not... You know, and any kind, of, we're just walking next to each other, talking. And Al comes out from one side of the corner and Wendy and I are on the other side of the corner. I look at Al. He looks at me. Al Schwartz always had a quip or a comment. It was nobody as quick at Al, as, as Al. Maybe Denny. Denny has, shares that. They always have, have, have a, a, a <laughs> you know uh, some comment that, that beats you to the punch. I said, I, I didn't know what to say. I said, Al, you know Wendy, right? Wendy, Mr. Schwartz, Al, Wendy. Al looks, and again, people who know Al can, can see this. Al drops his chin to his chest and he is slowly shaking his head from from side to side. He's got this thin smile on his face. One of the first times I ever saw Al Schwartz without no without knowing what to say. Al looks at me. He looks at Wendy and he slowly turns and walks back where he came from. <laughs>
0: That's it. That's it. That's it. Just walked away, <laughs> and we wa- and I walked away. I was back before
2: breakfast. I brought her home.
0: <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, Steve. We're going to do a second part of this. Uh, We have a whole other part of the story to tell. But before we get to that, I just want to, first of all, thank you for taking the time to do this. This is fantastic.
2: We've been trying to get together. And thank
0: you. Thank you. Not only for this interview, but for all, I don't know, 60-something other ones. And let me double down by just saying that you have been a big supporter of the project and behind the scenes and in many, many ways. And let me just say thank you for helping truly make all of this possible. So thank you. Thank you, too. And we'll do it again very soon. And and you're
2: bringing a special guest next time. I am. I'm not telling. I don't. I don't show my whole card.